Biles, and I'm here today with Eric from ProgramWithEric.com and Neil Tawani. Is that how I say your name? It's Tawani with a T. Tawani. Awesome. And he's working for Infigy. And so what we're doing with this podcast is we're showing you like real world people who are doing awesome work in Ember. And we just get to know them a little bit better, uh, get to know what their companies are doing. Because I know like we see the same celebrities all the time. And sometimes we think like those are the only people doing Ember, but that's not true. There are plenty of awesome people out there. All right. So go ahead and tell us a little about yourself. Well, uh, I am formerly a JavaScript developer. My last job, I told my boss or supervisor during one of our one-on-ones that I wanted to be a JavaScript wizard. And oh. he readily obliged. Spellbook? Uh, I have a spell book. It's called <laughs> RTFM. That's a very short Emblate. spell. <laughs> so he, he put me on a test development team, and I did that for a while. And then uh, I found out about this data visualization gig uh-huh. and uh, Ember gig at Infigy and interviewed here and really like the team and the office that we work in is beautiful um, and kind of made that move in April. And ever since April, I've been working on an Ember and D3 stack here at Infigy. Oh, that's really exciting. So you've been programming with Ember just since April. Yeah, just a few months now. Wow, and you've already been able to do some really cool stuff with that. The uh, the learning curve with Ember is just awesome. Within my first week, I was committing code. I was given a project to migrate an administrator panel, like the one that our sales guys use when they interact with clients. And it was built on Backbone on an old piece of software that we had. And our architect, Jesse, migrated that piece of software from Backbone into a new product beautifully written in Ember. Yeah, that's so what you're saying about the learning curve, that makes me really happy to hear because I know that wasn't always the case. Yeah, this is a new thing. (laughs) Is it in production yet? It is. It is all in production. It's called Infigy Atlas. It's been in production for about a year or so, maybe a year and a half. No, wait, that's not right. How long has it been in production? Yeah, a year and a half. About a year and a half, good. (laughs) All right, so the whole company's been doing Ember for about a year and a half. Yeah. And uh, so, like, where's the company located, and what do you guys do? Uh, We're in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh Uh-huh. You're in the heartland of the United States. InfoG Atlas is a social media intelligence platform. Uh, So what we do is we take high high uh, amounts of data sets, very large data sets, analyze streaming text and extract information from those data sets uh, very quickly. So you help companies sort of understand what their customers are thinking. Yep, pretty much. So like if Coke releases a new flavor and they can tell how people like it so they can give people what they want. Is that sort of what you do? That's a that's a good summary of what we do. You can also look at, I guess, recently we published blog posts every now and then. We analyzed McDonald's all-day breakfast uh-huh. and found that the expectations that were set before the breakfast was announced did not meet the results that consumers found based on uh, an inconsistency in local chains uh, what the uh, the things that they served, something like biscuits or something. I don't really eat McDonald's a lot. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I have a few times recently just because of the all-day breakfast. And indeed, Infigy Atlas did predict correctly that some of the offerings are not consistent. Nice. So that helped McDonald's to be able to like discover what their customers were 
wanting from them. And action steps to take, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I know that that would have been really hard to do even just 20 years, well, even just 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so you're located in Kansas City with the team. Yeah. Yeah. We all work on site at the Infigy office here. Uh, it's about 15 minutes north of downtown Kansas City. We have a nice little kind of strip mall next to the office with a lot of grocery stores and uh, places to eat and stuff. It's a nice place. Yeah, it sounds like it. I knew uh, I grew up in Kansas. Did you really? Yeah, so I'm a little biased. That's funny. <laughs> the team's been using Ember for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And you weren't there for that transition. I was not, no. Do you know why they decided on Ember and what the transition was like? Well, our uh, our lead architect, Jesse, was trying out several frameworks at the time. Uh, she built a few small test apps because we wanted to do a little bit more robust data visualization and uh, do cooler things with the data that we were getting from our back end. So she tested out Backbone, Angular, Marionette, Knockout, and found that Ember's opinionated structure, its data binding, the view templates without the logic, uh, backed by models and routes, uh, she appreciated the community and the, the companies that had already adopted Ember, and the project seemed very well organized and very well run. Uh, the, the level of transparency, I think, was what really pushed us over the edge and made us take that leap. Yeah, that transparency is like really valuable, and it's definitely not something we're used to, even from open source projects. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I know you got Jesse right there. Yeah. Jesse, do you want to add anything to that? Not particularly. Basically, like he said, I knew we needed to build a new system. The old one was built kind of a more traditional uh, sense where the back end rendered the templates and then the front end uh, was pretty dumb. It had a little bit of JavaScript for interactivity, but not much. And we wanted to change that to a purely API-driven, like very front-end heavy client so we could do more interesting things with the data. Um, so yeah, I built some small test apps and various other platforms and frameworks to kind of figure out uh, what we like. Um, I did have some experience previously with Sprout Core, so that also helped. The biggest downside to Ember, uh, having spoken about the positives, was probably the learning curve early on because we started the start project was started maybe almost a year before we actually launched it because it's a very very large project. So that was a very very early version of Ember. It was pre 1.0. And there's not much documentation. I spent a lot of time on the IRC chat yeah. uh, talking with the various people working on the project. Oh, so you guys launched a year and a half ago and you started two and a half years ago. Right. Oh, yeah, that was <laughs> that was the time. Yeah, so it was rough. There, there were a lot of improvements made to Ember since then. So I had to do a lot of um, weird hacky code in the beginning to get some things working. But... Still felt that that was preferable to the alternatives, uh, the other frameworks that uh, we had looked into. Yeah. And so the process of upgrading, like pulling out those hacky things and replacing them with more Embry things, how was that for you guys? Uh, it went pretty well at first. <laughs> Problem is, is at one point we got behind on upgrades about Ember 1.5. Uh-huh. And it didn't really touch the upgrades until about Ember 1.12 or 1.13. Oh, yeah. It was pretty far behind. So we're, we're kind of diving through that right now. It's taking some time. Yeah, the 1.10 to 1.13 transitions were a little difficult. Yeah, but most of it was able to be fixed through uh, 
some scripts that did, you know, find and replaces, some regex magic and a lot of that sort of thing to get it working. And now we're kind of going through to clean it up and make it a little bit nicer. Uh-huh. Uh, we also originally started by using Grunt to build a project and uh, Minispade as the module management. So we also had to transition to the CLI, which is a very different structure. Yeah. However, it's a lot cleaner and a lot nicer. But that was probably the bulk of the work, just converting the module system over and not no longer using the global Ember and app dot namespaces. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned that you use regexes to do some of that work. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I know there's some official support for that with like Ember Watson and uh, there was a converter from regular Ember to Ember CLI. What other sorts of things do you guys write? It was a lot of Python scripts and use uh, Sublime. Sublime's uh, regex find and replaces. Oh, cool. A lot of it ended up being very long regex strings, <laughs> <laughs> but it worked pretty well. The ones that couldn't be handled with regex were often Python scripts. We, we often kept several modules in the same file, so those had to be split out. So Python would step through those, create the new files, copy the code over, you know, change the module format, everything like that. So Oh, that's awesome. I just did a project where I did all that manually and yeah. really should have thought of a Python script. <laughs> Our project is so large, it would have just been nearly impossible to do it manually. You counted the components. It's 1,800 components. Yeah. <laughs> wow. hundred components in the project. Oh, man. I thought I was working on a big project. <laughs> wow. So that's a lot of code, and you're able to go through all those upgrades. Sounds like fairly smoothly. Not yeah. really. No. <laughs> some, of them, some of it was smooth and some of it was not. Some of them, they were missing semicolons, and some of them, they were just missing entire uh, method bodies. It was pretty wild in, in terms of... We also had another developer working on our team who would... We didn't really have good branch management or code management. So we lost things in the upgrade and I guess taking care of that is where we are right now. Uh-huh. During that process of the transition, did you guys hire on specifically for Ember developers and was that difficult to find? The last developer we hired just recently. About a week ago. Aver- yeah, about a week ago. We advertised for an Ember position and that was very difficult. We weren't able to find, uh, for the um, applicants that we had, we didn't really find anyone with like solid previous Ember experience. But we basically filtered by people who, you know, really knew JavaScript and, you know, really knew how to program. They weren't just like making web pages from getting whatever. I'd imagine it would be easier for them to pick up Ember. Exactly. And the person we hired had a lot of Angular experience. It was very different, but it has enough similarities that he was able to pick up Ember pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, so you got him a week ago, and he's already up and running? Yeah, he's already committed several components. He's doing great. Awesome. So uh, if you have 1,800 components, what's your philosophy on when to componentize something? Basically, we try to keep it kind of kind of two things, like single-purpose components that have a minimal interface so they don't take much to be passed in. They don't need to pass much out. So self-contained modularized components. And, and sometimes we'll split those up into sub ones if they need to be reused frequently throughout the app. Uh-huh. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of very standard components that we've built, like different drop-down type menus, uh, toggle buttons, and things like that that are just used everywhere. Uh-huh. 
small minor components, and then we have the larger ones for the big data visualization and charting and all of that. Yeah, and each of those are made up of a bunch of smaller components, I'd imagine. Yeah, exactly. Some, yeah, so you guys are diving headfirst in that part of the new architecture. Yeah, absolutely. Have uh, the new closure actions, have you guys been able to take advantage of those? Have those helped your component structure? Because of the legacy code, we haven't used much of them yet. Uh-huh. That is something that we want to put into the upgrade. Uh, we have another product that we just launched recently called Canvas. Uh-huh. And that I started working on earlier this year, and it just launched recently. So that we are able to start from modern Ember from the start. And so it uses a lot more of the uh, uh, modern features and structure. Yeah, a lot of the time it's really useful because then you can get used to the new architecture without having to haul along like 10,000 pounds of code. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So uh, has Ember solved any organizational issues for you guys? Like how does working together as a team on Ember work for you guys? Going back to the choice of frameworks, that was actually a big reason I liked Ember as well. Uh our previous version of the app used Backbone in some places, some weird like hand-coded JavaScript in other places. It was very disorganized, uh-huh. very hard to follow. So one of the things I liked about Ember was it had a very opinionated structure and it had its way of doing things, which has really helped the with um, working as a team because it adds a lot of consistency to the code and just naturally allows the different developers to keep a similar structure and format. Yeah, I've definitely found the same thing. Just being able to jump into different code bases and be able to be productive very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like there's a huge benefit there. And we already talked about some of the difficulties that are still there, like uh, part of the upgrade process, especially Ember CLI. Are there any other big difficulties that it's been causing you? Uh, as far as the upgrade? Using Ember compared to other tools. Oh, an early on issue that we're slowly solving was Ember did not originally play nice with SVG. Uh-huh. We had a lot of issues with data binding within uh, SVG blocks and templates. Right. Which meant we had to do a lot of manual work with observers and some weird jQuery stuff and D3 stuff. Yeah. And HTML bars has solved that, right? It has. And way cleaner. Significantly reduces the uh, size of the code. And just it's a lot easier to follow. It works better. It's faster. But that was a very big challenge uh, early on. Yeah. Awesome. And so uh, the next question is about whether you guys are hiring. And I know right now we're recording this in November. We're probably going to release the first episodes of this starting sometime in January. So uh, I know you guys can't peer into the future, but do you expect to be hiring? I imagine given our release cadence, at the moment we probably wouldn't be hiring. But as we do grow, as we build upon Atlas and Canvas more, we'll be looking into hiring more Ember and D3 devs. We actually do have a support engineer or sysadmin role on our engineering team. And we are also always hiring Python developers uh, who are interested in text analytics, NLP, things like that. All right. So if you're Python, a uh, test engineer, or Ember D3, then in January when this is released, they should give you a call. Come on board. Yeah. All right. Awesome. And you're not looking for remote, right? Sorry to interrupt. 
you guys are looking for in Kansas, right? Not not uh, in Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah, That's Kansas it. City, Kansas. We we have some people who live there, but we encourage them to just cross over the river. It's nicer here. <laughs> oh, I moved out too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Is there anything else you want to tell people? No, no, that was good. That worked out well. I don't think we do. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you guys for doing this. Yeah, this was fun. This was like our first foray. So what we did is uh, we had like a planning meeting maybe three weeks ago and we were talking about like which direction we wanted to take the team. Yeah. So we talked about like cadences and software development lifecycle and all this, but we also talked about projector screens and hosting meetups and stuff. So this is kind oh, of an nice. to build developer relations and uh, hiring a hiring a JavaScript developer was easy. Hiring a JavaScript developer who knew JavaScript was not easy. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's just like in 1999, you can hire someone who can make a web page. Yeah. <laughs> but can you hire someone who can make a web page? Yeah. So so many of the candidates we interviewed, if uh, if it wasn't just raw jQuery to <laughs> animation toggling a button that should even, shouldn't even be done with JavaScript anymore, uh, <laughs> then they just didn't know what they were doing. And so, so it was very challenging. Yeah. Because uh, it's, hard, it's hard to articulate in the application what we mean by a strong developer with JavaScript and, uh, uh, experience. So, Yeah, I mean, until you have a serious application, then it's easy to get by on jQuery. I'm yep. curious, do you guys do take-home tests or whiteboarding during your interview process? So we, our CEO uh, is a Python developer, and, but he is usually the initial point of contact for most new recruits. We actually mixed it up this recruitment cycle, and Jesse and I kind of issued a screening interview. We took their app, uh, resume and cover letter. Mm -hmm. We uh, reviewed them, kind of like shot a few emails back and forth, what have you, and then said, hey, we'd like to chat with you on the phone. This will be a behavioral, and it'll also be a somewhat technical interview. Uh -huh. um, most There was one candidate who uh, answered every single question on the technical interview very, very uh, book bookishly, very accurately, but he didn't seem to give a damn about anything. <laughs> <laughs> It didn't seem like his knowledge was very deep. It looked like he had found a bunch of posts online of what questions to expect in a JavaScript interview. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he, like, because it sounded like he was reciting from Rhodes. Yeah, yeah. Like, he had just memorized the answer to everything. Yeah, and, that's nice. Uh, so, like, he comes into the job and is like, hmm, what technique should I use? Should I use FizzBuzz or Recursion? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the only two I know. Yeah. <laughs> so after the, the phone interview, uh, we kind of chatted, like, do you like this person? Do you not like this person? Generally, our CEO sat in on most of those chats. I remember during Chris. Chris is the name of the guy that we hired. Justin, our CEO, was not there for his phone interview. So that was kind of funny in that when we offered Chris the in-person interview after giving him a request for a code sample based on our API data. So we do linguistic analysis. I think it was the emotions object. Yeah, we basically just got a, one of our JSON dumps from our API, one of the more complex ones, threw it at them and said, make us some visualizations. 
<laughs> that was pretty much the extent of our instructions because we wanted to see, you know, let their creativity come into play and see what they could create from that. And this dude gave us a visualization that was almost exactly as the one that we use in Atlas. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and he didn't I, have access to Atlas. Nobody. No, no. <laughs> it was awesome. So that's a really good culture fit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then he came in, and we, we have kind of like a snarky, witty banter culture here, uh-huh. I guess. Uh, so during the interview, he engaged in that just kind of off the cuff. We didn't even plan for it. Yeah. I prepared a list of questions based on his resume. She prepared a, just questions that she had off the top of her head. And we went back and forth, and eventually I was just like, I'm satisfied. Are you satisfied? And she was like, yeah. So we, I think it was a Wednesday that he came in for the interview. Uh, we had an interview the day after that and we were like, okay, if this guy afterwards blows us away, we'll hold off on issuing Chris an offer. But Chris was just, you know, exactly what we were looking for in a candidate, reasonable amount of JavaScript experience, reasonable amount of web dev really cared. Um, it was a very good experience overall. Um, but just having those filters to get through developers was incredibly important. Yeah. I was just interested. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like way into like organizational development and HR and stuff as far as software development goes. Yeah, yeah it, Neil has been very helpful because while he is passionate about that, I am the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just like the code. I like to make things. I like the architect, the organizational yeah. stuff. Somebody else can handle that. And Neil's been very, very good at getting us uh to a little bit more of a professional level as our uh, as far as the organization and uh, tracking changes and transparency within the company and all of that sort of thing. I mean, people are like an API, but they're undocumented and they do a different thing every time. Yeah. <laughs> That's a funny way of looking at it. <laughs> cool. All right. Now I think this is the real end. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. We'll uh, see you around. All right, sounds good. This is the end of the show, but here's a message from our sponsor. Our sponsor who happens to be me. So I run emberscreencast.com. If you're an intermediate level developer, then this site is for you. So you've read your introductory book and you're ready to get started, but you're not quite into reading the source code yet. So. I go and I explain some of the basics, but I also explain cool add-ons and some intermediate to advanced topics as well. So go ahead and check out emberscreencast.com. Two screencasts released every week for the intermediate Ember developer. I hope to see you there.